you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful. Listen to A Really Good Cry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tales from the Vault is a production of the NFL in partnership with iHeartRadio. Welcome to NFL Films Tales from the Vault. I'm your host, Hall of Fame journalist Andrea Kramer. The late president of NFL Films, Steve Sable, was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in the summer of 2021. For nearly 50 years, he was the heart and soul of NFL Films. Over that time, Steve conducted hundreds of interviews with the greatest figures in NFL history. On this podcast, you'll get to hear from them, raw, unedited, in their entirety for the first time. My role, I'm sort of the tour guide, you know, holding your hand as we step into the time capsule, providing context, insights, and the occasional anecdote from my time covering these men who played the game, as Steve liked to call them. This week, we have Steve's 1995 interview with the famed punky QB, the Bears' Jim McMahon. In the summer of 1995, NFL Films began production on a special 10th anniversary celebration of one of the most iconic Super Bowl champions in NFL history, the 1985 Chicago Bears. At the center of the episode was an interview done by Steve Sable with the leader of that team, well, one of the leaders anyway, quarterback Jim McMahon. At this point in his career, McMahon was on his fifth different team since leaving the Bears following the 1988 season. The bulk of this interview takes place indoors on location in Chicago, where Steve and Jim delve into the nuts and bolts of the season. But we begin with them on the shores of Lake Michigan, with the city behind them as they set the scene for the anniversary show with a quick little Q&A. Sort of consider this the appetizer for the full meal yet to come. So let's go to the vault for Steve Sable and Jim McMahon. Hi, I'm Steve Sable, and I'm in Chicago today. And joining me as a co-host on today's show is the former quarterback of the world champion 1985 Chicago Bears, Jim McMahon. Jim, it's good to How have you doing, here. Steve? You know, and Jim, Carl Sandburg once wrote about this city. He said that uh, Chicago is coarse, strong, and cunning. That's a pretty good description of your old team, isn't it? I think so. I think our team is, fits every one of those words and probably a few more. <laughs> now, when I think of your team, I think of, you know, the 46 defense, I think of yourself, I think of the refrigerator, I think of Mike Ditka, too. Now, what was it like to play for a coach like that? Well, Mike was a uh, very intense individual. He's, I would have loved to play with him because he was a great football player and, and his attitude, but 
play for him at times was it was a little tough. Now, as a fan, I always just remember, you know, I'm raging along the sidelines. Do you ever remember any specific uh, temper tantrums that he had that you still remember now? Uh, we had a we had a quite a few run-ins on the sidelines, but there was one one story in particular in 1983. We we're playing in Baltimore. We lost in overtime, and he he, he came in the locker room. He was very upset, and he just turned and he punched a punched a locker. Yeah. And it, as he hit it, he turned to Vince Evans and said, Vinny, lead him in prayer, and Doc, I need to see you in the bathroom. The <laughs> you know, next day, he walks in with a cast. He broke it down. Uh, Ditka and McMahon, just two of the innumerable characters on those great 80s Bears teams, many of whom we'll be hearing more great stories about. As you listen to this interview, and to keep me from jumping in every two minutes and disrupting the flow, let me remind you of everything that happened. So I'll give you a brief overview. The 1985 Bears went 15-1 in the regular season. The great Walter Payton was their star running back. Mike Singletary, Samurai Mike, was the leader of the most feared and arguably best defense in NFL history. And if you doubt that, just ask any of those players themselves. Mike Ditka was the head coach. And the colorful Buddy Ryan, well, he actually considered himself the head coach of the defense. McMahon actually played for Buddy in both Philadelphia and Arizona. But Buddy was in title the Bears' defensive coordinator. Then there was the fridge. William Refrigerator Perry, larger than life and on the field, at 315 pounds, which was unique for a defensive line back then. McMahon's health was also a big part of that season. And in fact, Steve will ask Jim about the Week 3 game against the Vikings when an injured McMahon took over mid-game and led the Bears to victory. And of course... Who can forget the Monday night game against the Miami Dolphins? So let's hear about it all and go back to the vault. When you went into training camp in 1985, was there a feeling in that training camp, if you could go back, that sort of said, you know, this, we might have something special here? Or, 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 or was this something that sort of developed during the course of the season? No, I think it, uh, it started in 84, or actually in 83. We won the last... Uh, I think six of the last seven games in 83 and started getting a feel for how good we were going to be. And then in 84, we came out and, and uh, we went to the playoffs, went to the NFC Championship game in 84. Uh, we, we knew that we had a pretty good football team. And then in 85, it just all seemed to come together. Uh, we went into camp uh, with a feeling that, hey, we can, we can get to the next step and go to the Super Bowl. Uh, we started out, uh, I think, uh, if I remember right, we opened up with Tampa Bay, and uh, they were beating us at halftime, like 28 to 14 or something. And we eventually came back and beat them, and then uh, played the Patriots the second game of the year, beat them. And then I think the turning point of the season came on that Thursday night game against Minnesota. Uh, they were one and one at the time; we were two and zero. Oh, and had they beaten us, uh, you know, things might have been differently. But uh, that's the game that I came off the bench and or Ditka finally let me play and, and uh, we turned it around and, and won that ball game and then just got on a roll from there. In that game against the Vikings, what was why couldn't you play? What was the reason? Well, I'd, I'd gotten hurt in the, the Patriot game the week before. I was in, in the hospital in traction all week. I had uh, my neck and my upper back were spasming. And uh, so I didn't get out of the hospital till Wednesday. And that's the day we, we left to go up to Minnesota. And uh, Mike just said, you know, you're not playing. You know, you haven't been to practice. You haven't done anything. And uh, I'm convinced to this day the only reason he put me in the game was to get me off the sideline because I was bugging the hell out of him. 
I just kept saying, look, this thing's slipping away. You better let me play. And, and uh, you know, eventually he just said, all right, get your ass in there and, and go to it. But uh, that, was, uh, that was a fun game and, and a fun year. I remember one of those touchdown passes that Peyton had a hell of a block. Do you remember that? That was the, f the first play that I went in. The play was actually a screen pass. Um, but as I come away from the center, I stumbled a bit. And uh, that's when Walter came in and blocked the, the blitzing linebacker. And I saw the blitz coming, so I knew the screen wasn't going to be any good. You know, there were man-to-man -man coverage in the screen. And I just happened to look downfield, and Willie Galt was running his man off. And he got behind him, so I just let it go. And uh, we scored. In fact, Ditka asked me when I, when I got to the sidelines, he goes, what play did you call? I said, well, I called the screen, Mike, but that's not going to be any good against the blitz. I just threw it to him. Uh, and it, that's how that, that game worked. It just uh, kind of improvised and, and uh, got it done. When you go back to that training camp, what, what did you first think when you saw Perry? I mean, did you think, oh, shit, what is, what is this, some sort of joke? Or, or did you see, or did you see, or did the guy see it? Well, maybe this guy could help us. Well, he, was, uh, he wasn't as big as he is now. I mean, he was, he was fairly trim for, for William. I mean, he was maybe about 315, 320, which, was, uh, which is a good weight for him. Uh, he's, he's since ballooned up a little bit, but uh, the guy had amazing quickness for a big man, you know, and, he, and he, he blocked the holes. I mean, the guy took up a lot of space and took two people to block him, and that, that freed up guys like Dent and McMichael and Hampton and, and everybody else we had coming that year. And uh, although he didn't play much defense that first year, if I can remember right. I know Buddy Ryan wasn't real high on him. But um, Buddy really bust his balls during practice. I mean, I heard stories that just rode him. Yeah, he Why was, do you think that was? You think Ryan didn't want the guy in the first place, or that he? Was I don't think it was. It was Buddy's one of Buddy's choices for one, and uh, and then he was he was not in the kind of shape that Buddy likes his guys to be in. Uh, he works his defensive players pretty hard and keeps them in good shape. And uh, I don't think he felt that uh, William was going to be able to hold up. When you. One of the things when, when you practice, you would practice against Buddy's defense. Do you think that helped the, the offense at all to practice against the defense? Or maybe it didn't because nobody else ever played a defense like that. Well, it helped us because it, uh, I think it, it made us tougher offensively because having to try to block these guys. You know, I kept telling them, look, if we can block our own defense, we shouldn't have any problem with anybody else in the league because we had a great defensive line and, and we had linebackers that were coming all the time and safeties. And, and so it made us... Uh, a lot more alert offensively. And uh, so we were ready for anything come Sunday. In, in 1963, I remember I just started as a cameraman. I remember I was at the championship game and Ditka, I remember I was in awe and Ditka was playing tight end. And that was the year the Bears offense had Billy Wade. It really had no offense at all and had another great defense. And I remember being outside the locker room and somebody asked Ditka before the game something about the, the defense. And he turned around and he says, ah, oh, fuck that defense. You know, we got an offense too. And he was, was there a rivalry like that with you guys that, or, or was there a respect or was, I mean, a lot of teams that have great defense or great offenses, there's, there's a constant friction between the two. With your team, was it like that, or was it, or was there a feeling that, look, you know, we're both, we're all in this together, or was there some sort of rivalry? Between no, I think when I first got to Chicago in '82, that's all we, uh, anybody ever heard about was how good our defense was, you know, and it was defense this and defense that, and and I think uh, I got along pretty well with most of the guys on the defense, and, and I tried to relate to them, you know, you can't win by yourself, you know, we're we're going to have to do something offensively, for us to uh, to go all the way, and I think. Uh, our offense was very underrated that year. I think we, we held the ball for you know, close to 40 minutes a game. Uh, we scored a lot of points. 
um, you know, we didn't we didn't have a lot of turnovers, and I think uh, in something like nine of the 16 games we we scored first, and to give our defense a lead, that's pretty much all they needed. And uh, but I think uh, we complemented each other well because we kept them fresh, we scored points, got ahead, and then that's then let them do their thing. But uh, we were very underrated offensively, and I think that's that surprised a lot of people. We had a hell of an offensive line. Uh, like I said, we controlled the football most of the game, and got got points or enough points for us to win. And that's you know you got to have it. You can't have just one side and not the other, or else uh, you're not going to win. You know Miami's proved that over the years with Marino, you know best offensive football probably, and they can't win. Um, uh, teams like Denver that have gone to the Super Bowl. You know, you have to have balance on both sides of the ball or, or you're not going to win it. You mentioned Miami, and that was one of the, I think, one of the highest rated Monday night games in history when you guys were going for that undefeated season and you played the Dolphins. What do you remember about that game? Oh, I remember that he wouldn't play me that game. Uh, again, I was, I'd, I'd hurt an ankle the week before, uh, but I was much healthier that following week than I was in, in Minnesota. And uh, Mike just said, you know, you're not playing tonight. You, know, you haven't practiced. Again, that, I think that didn't practice rule only uh, related to me because guys on the defense, you know, they didn't practice all week, but they got to play. Um, you know, it was, it was very frustrating to sit there and watch what happened that night happen because, uh, you know, they got up, got up on us a little bit, and we are trying to throw the football. Uh, Steve Fuller, who's, who I thought was a heck of a quarterback, um, we, we just didn't have a, th a throwing offense. And we were a running football team, play action pass, and uh, we tried to keep up with Miami through the air, which I thought was ridiculous. And at the time, uh, Walter was going for his uh, ninth or 10th 100-yard game in a row, and I thought that was much more important than, than winning the football game. We were already in the playoffs. Uh, it would have been great to go undefeated, but uh, I think the way that thing happened was just, it was sad, you know. But I think that, that was kind of a wake-up call for us. Look, we can be beat. And uh, I think it, it uh, really got us to focus a lot more down the stretch. You have to truly understand the significance of that Dolphins-Bears game. The Bears were 12-0, and and back then, there had been no team since the 72 undefeated Dolphins to even start a season with 12 wins in a row. This game was considered really a speed bump to an undefeated season. It was really the last team that the Bears were going to face that could keep them from going undefeated. So. There were huge stakes here on this Monday night. Going into this game, the Bears were a juggernaut that had allowed three points total in their previous three games. And here comes Dan Marino and the Dolphins trying to knock them off and preserve the legacy of their predecessors, that famous Miami team from a decade before. Well, as much as McMahon may or may not have made a difference, the Dolphins put up 38 points on the NFL's best defense. When we come back, McMahon tells Steve about his conflicts with Ditka. Ditka? McMahon? Conflict? No, I'd never believe that. Plus, the story of the Rolling Stone cover shoot. Stay tuned. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower... 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. 
Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we push against typical societal norms. We embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful, providing a space for raw, unfiltered conversations that celebrate vulnerability and allow you to tune in, to share, connect, and find comfort together. Our tears come as a way to let us release what we can't hold anymore. I trust that no one's ever going to find out those deepest, darkest secrets. It's been a hard day. She walks out, and this is what she looks like. Oh my gosh, give her an Oscar. <laughs> Listen to A Really Good Cry with me, Radhi Devlukia, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. Say what you will about Mike Ditka, the coach, his record does speak for itself. But it always seemed like he was feuding with someone. It was Ditka versus the media, versus his players, Buddy Ryan, and even, yes, Jim McMahon. For McMahon's part, consider that coming out of such a tightly wound culture at BYU, he was expecting life in the NFL to be a little less restrictive, but that was not the case under head coach Mike Ditka. Plus, Ditka liked being the bad guy. He thought it gave him an edge, as evidenced by the quote you're about to hear. When Ditka had a quote that season, he said something about, you know, they're they're fair-haired teams and they're not fair-haired teams, and they're teams that are named Smith, and they're teams that are named Grabowski, and we're Grabowskis. What, 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 did he th- what do you think? How did you interpret that when you, <laughs> I, when you heard that? I tried not to interpret anything Mike had to say. I mean, it was, uh, I guess that was his way of saying that we had a bunch of tough guys that, you know, we we're going to line up and play no matter what, and, and uh, which we were. I mean, we, we, had, a, we had a lot of... Uh, uh, Pretty intimidating individuals, both on both sides of the football. You know, our offensive line didn't take crap from anybody, uh, even our own guys. Uh, there was a lot of fights in practice, and, and offensively, we did pretty well in those. Um, I think there was a, a great respect between both sides of our our our, uh, our team, and I think that's why we uh, we played together um, on Sundays, and we had a great time off the field. I think that's that's the thing that we all kind of remember the most is how much fun we had off the field. Uh, we still came came to play on Sunday, but once the game was over, I mean, we, we knew how to have fun, and uh, we did. Um, you mentioned something about Ditka. It's really interesting that I remember doing a piece on quarterbacks and coaches. And you go back through history from Otto Graham and, and never got along with Paul Brown. Roger Staubach was terrified of Landry. Bradshaw to this day hates Chuck Knowles. Why is it that quarterbacks and head coaches. And again, I mean, just you and I are talking, there seems to be some sort of friction. Is that because a quarterback, really, this is my team, and the coach is saying this is my team? How would you describe your, would your relationship with Mike fit into sort of that same traditional mold where you have a quarterback who's a real leader and a coach who wants, you, you, you see, when you look through history, you seem to see that that always seems to happen, even with Montana and Bill Walsh. Well, I think, uh, for one thing, I don't think he understood me very well. I mean, he thought that I didn't put enough effort in. Uh, I didn't watch enough film. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. But uh, for what we were doing, I mean, you could have ran our offense. I mean, it, d- it didn't take a whole lot of brains to, to turn around and give the ball to Wally 30 times a game. Uh, where we had our problems is, is the way he was calling the plays. 
I mean, he called plays like a tight end would call a play. It was really no rhyme or reason, it seemed like. And uh, a lot of times, the play that was sent in was not the one that I called. And that kind of upset him a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, I, feel, I feel that I have a good grasp of, of the game of football. And I, I, I think I was a lot further ahead than most people coming out of college because of where I went to school. Uh, we threw the ball 35 times a game. You know, I was able to look and see what was happening on the defensive side of the ball, where a lot of guys are turning around giving the ball to running backs. They don't learn a lot of what's going on. <coughs> so I felt that I, you know, I had a good grasp of what we needed to do. And uh, even as a rookie, I changed a lot of plays and or called audibles, and because that's the way I was taught. And uh, you know, when you got nine guys on this side of the ball, why try to run it over there? We're we're notorious. Third and long, we're going to run a sweep. And everybody in the league knew it, and uh, so I wouldn't. I change it, you know, run the other way, and, and uh, we'd get a lot of first downs. And uh, you know, I talked to Walter about it, and he says, "Hey, just keep doing what you're doing. You're saving me." You know, uh, you know, it's it's to me this game is not that hard, and uh, to, everybody tries to overanalyze it, and uh, you know, we got to do this and got to do that. It's it's like a chess game, you know. Try to try to go where they're not. And that's, that's basically what I've tried to do my whole career. Well, when you would come off the field after that, what would, what would Ditka say to you about that? I mean, with, with their... Well, we had our words. I mean, there was a lot of, lot of uh, toe-to-toe discussions uh, during the games. But, uh, you know, Mike had a tendency to, to fly off the handle. But then if you said something to him that'll snap him out of it, he'd kind of realize, okay, well... That's why he did that. Or, or during the film sessions on Monday, he'd say, well, I, I see now why you did what you did. But at the time, you know, it, he just would blow up, and, and uh, then I'd blow up, and then it'd just kind of blow over after that. But Do you think that because of Ditka being the way he was, that actually he was sort of an unusual personality, you were unusual, Singletary's Hampton, and when you look at the whole team, do you think that that was good because it brought a lot of sparks together and that in turn maybe made the team better, had another, and you have Buddy Ryan thrown into the mix? I mean, do you think that that, if you'd had a, a coach like a Ted March of Broda or somebody, do you think the team would have been just as good? Well, I think, I mean, we had the best players in the league. I mean, you look over the years, uh, the teams that win pretty much have the best talent. And I think we were as talented as anybody. But I think all those distractions, you know, Buddy and Ditka would get into it every every game. Uh, Ditka and, and myself, or, or you know, if somebody was always uh, chomping at the bit at each other. But uh, you know, we, we as a, as a team, as players, you know, we decided we're going to win in, in spite of all this that's going on because we knew we were we were pretty good, pretty damn good. And uh, so we didn't, we didn't let that stuff bother us. You know, we let them say whatever they wanted to say. But when we got on the field, I had the last say in the offensive huddle, and Mike had the last say in the defensive huddle. So we just said, you know, let's, let's just get it done for ourselves. When uh, you look at, at, that, at that whole team and the, and the personality of it, one of the things that was interesting, as you see now, celebrities sort of attract, you know, are attracted. Did you have any celebrities that you noticed would show up at the games and sort of want to align themselves with with your with with your team and well, I remember Bill Murray being on the sidelines a couple of times. Uh, in fact, he was there during the, the playoff games and uh, uh, Johnny McEnroe, who was a friend of Kenny Marjoram from college, uh, he was there a few times. Other than that, I didn't see too many other people. Uh, I try not to to look around the sidelines and I try to worry about what's on the field, but. Uh, 
I'm mean, sure there was somewhat. I mean, you were on the cover of Rolling Stone. I mean, what was that like? Did they? Do you remember what that happened when they called? Because at that time, people were laughing. So you were one of the few players who probably ever read Rolling Stone and knew what the hell it was. I mean, did you? When they called you up and talked to you, well, do you remember anything about that? And saying, "Wow, what you know? What do you want me on the cover for Rolling Stone?" Well, that's that actually came from Keith Van Horn, who's a big music buff, and and uh, he was saying, "Hey, you got to try to do a cover." So I I had my attorney call, or they called. I don't know how it it, it came about, but uh, I told him the only way I would do it is if if Keith and Kurt Becker were on the cover with me, and uh, they screwed that up too. But you know, they took pictures of Keith and I and, and Kurt and. That it was happening down in New Orleans just before the Super Bowl is when they took all the shots. But uh, you know they put them in the magazine, but they didn't put them on the cover with me. So I, I kind of bummed me out. Do you remember what that shoot was like? Because those, uh, I'm just curious. Because I remember those cover shoots are usually a big. Uh, I just remember being in some hotel room down in New Orleans. Uh, we did we did the shots, and then we had a the guy who wrote the article kind of followed us around until we ditched him. You know, and uh, it was. Uh, that was just a crazy week, you know, all that stuff that happened with the, with the reporter saying that I said this and that about the women in New Orleans, and uh, I was just happy to get out of town alive. I'm glad the game was over, and uh, I'm glad the season was over. It was, uh, it was a hectic year. McMahon always seemed to court controversy, but with the eyes of the sporting world laser-focused on the Super Bowl, everything's magnified, and McMahon was at the epicenter of it all. A false TV report in New Orleans incorrectly quoted McMahon as saying, New Orleans is the dirtiest city I've ever seen. The people are stupid and the women are sluts. That report led to death threats and protests by women's groups outside the team hotel. The next day, the TV station issued a retraction and an apology, but the damage was done. And to add injury to insult, McMahon, who was suffering from a deep buttock bruise, you got it, a legitimate pain in the ass. McMahon mooned a helicopter, ostensibly to show the world where he was hurt, as if the world was better off seeing Jim McMahon's butt. Needless to say, it was never a dull moment with McMahon, much to the team and Ditka's chagrin. And of course, we haven't even heard about the Super Bowl shuffle, the vaunted headband, but just you wait. Here it all comes. What happened with that report? Because I remember that you said you called the women or something. <laughs> well, that's like that. that's what it. Jesus Christ! How did that? <laughs> that's what uh, the guy said. I said. I mean, it supposedly happened at six in the morning at some interview, and and guys that knew me knew I wasn't getting up for any damn interview at six o'clock in the morning. Um, I don't know what it was the guy had for had it out for me, but you know I was having fun in New Orleans. I mean, uh, we got down there what Monday. Uh, so Tuesday and Wednesday, you know, we were having a great time, and, and all of a sudden Thursday morning I got up, I went down to breakfast, and uh, Jerry Venisi came up to me and said, you really did it this time. And I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. Um, and then Mike Ditka came up to me and said, did you say that? And I said, say what? I still had no idea what was going on. And uh, finally my attorney caught up with me and he says, hey, this, this thing came out and, you know, did you do this or did you say this? I said, I don't know what they're talking about. I didn't do the interview, didn't say, you know, even if I had thought I would never say that to a reporter. But, uh, you know, so I went back up to my room and uh, my attorney says, look, you gotta go down and face the press. I go, why, why face the press? I mean, hell, they're saying whatever the hell they wanna say anyway. You know, just let them say it. 
But uh, so I finally went down and said, look, you know, all you people in this room want to believe that I did this interview and called the women sluts and this and that. But, you know, unfortunately, I didn't. And uh, so if you believe me, fine. If not, you know, I don't give a shit. You know, we got a game to play and I'm not going to let this be a distraction, you know, to myself or the team. And uh, well, that's just how the that's basically how the whole year went. You know, people saying whatever they wanted to say about us and. And uh, we didn't care. We just showed up on Sunday and just beat people. Now, what about the thing with the helicopter? What was that, that, that story about that? Was that true? Well, we're, yeah, that was true. But, uh, you know, the guy was just kind of hovering around right, right during our stretch time. And, and uh, you know, at that time, my ass was still about that big from the, from the hit I took. And uh, I just kind of showed him where it was. And that was it. Well, I didn't think it was that big a deal. But... Uh, you guys in the press, I'll tell you. All right. How about, well, you see you guys in the press. How about the whole thing with the Super Bowl shuffle when, when that started? Now, when they came to you, didn't you think, wait a second, you know, we haven't won anything yet, and it, we're going to really come off as, as really cocky when this thing, but that, you just figure, well, shit, we're good enough. I don't give a shit what anybody else. Let's do it because it was fun. Or how did that ever happen? Well, it started as a, as a fundraiser thing for the, for the uh, needy people in Chicago around Christmas time. Um, I really wasn't that interested in doing it. Uh, you know, we, we went ahead and, and cut the record, and uh, I, I had told him at the time, look, I'm not doing any, any video or anything else until after, you know, we get through with this year, because I knew what kind of impact that would have on the teams we're playing and, and around the league. But uh, so we, went, we did the record, and all of a sudden now they're saying, okay, well, we got to do the video along with the record, you know. And we had told them before, look, we're not going to do it. And, in fact, I didn't show up to the, the video shoot. Uh, uh, Peyton didn't show up either. And uh, the rest of the guys did the thing. And, and uh, in fact, you can, you can kind of tell in the video that Walter and I are superimposed in that thing because I don't know where they did the video at, but me and Walter did our parts in the racquetball court at Hollis Hall. And uh, in fact, they were going to sue us. Willie Galt and his guy who started this thing were going to sue us had we not done the, done the part. So eventually we did it. and. Uh, I'm just glad it didn't it didn't backfire, but uh, we had fun with it. You know, a lot of people still uh, talk about that. You know, I, I sign a lot of those little record things that people have at these autograph shows and stuff like that. But uh, I thought it was a little kind of embarrassing, but you know, that's the way it goes. How about when uh, to get back to the thing before the Super Bowl? What about the, the headband? I mean, that was another thing that created. I mean, was in the cover of every magazine and the newspapers when you start. Where'd you Where'd you get that idea? How did that? Well, I started wearing a headband back in college. Uh, I just don't like wearing a helmet. I mean, it rubs rubs crap out of your your forehead, and uh, I started wearing it just to keep the skin on my head, you know. And and I wore it all year long. Uh, nobody ever said a word to me during the season about it. It had Adidas on it all year long. And then suddenly now we're in the playoffs and now it's a big deal. And uh, they said they were going to find me, which they did. Uh, they said it was free advertising for the televisions. Uh, you don't hear that in the golf tournaments or the tennis tournaments. The guys got, I mean, it's, there's stuff all over. That's free advertising. But it, because the NFL wasn't getting a cut, we couldn't do this. That's that's the that's the big problem with those uh, uh, the rules that they have. It's ridiculous. If they don't get their cut, then you can't do it. So, uh, you know, they they said they were going to find me, and then the following week we're playing in the the championship game. Uh, I came out with the Adidas one on, and the ref told me he says you can't. 
know, you can't wear that. Uh, so I went back in the locker room and, and decided, in fact, uh, Mike McCaskey was, said, hey, why don't you put George Hallis's name on there, or my name, you know, and that wasn't going to be a good idea. So we just uh, decided to just throw Roselle's on. He can't find me for giving him advertising, I thought. So uh, that actually worked out pretty well. I got a lot of, a lot of uh, kudos for that one. But it happened the same way, uh, same way in the Super Bowl. They said I couldn't wear it. And, uh, but Adidas gave me 50,000 reasons to wear it. So you know, I went out in warm-ups and I had it on. And, and uh, the referee says, I can't let you out on the field with that on your head. And so I decided, well, there's no rule against neck bands. So I just pulled the damn thing all the way down to my neck. I wore it all game. And he says, well, I, there is no rule about that. So the following year, they came out with a lot of different rules for me and whoever else wanted to uh, try to take advantage of the system. But you had a, a friend's name or something on one for one for, for the Super Bowl, I had, uh, I mean, I got sent thousands of these things. I mean, some with just people's names on them, but uh, I chose a lot of charities. Um, figured they, they can't find me for charities because that's what basically the NFL and their <clears throat> the charity program they have. I mean, what, what's the big deal? So I ended up wearing a lot of different charities, and then I had uh, one that said Pluto on it for a guy that I played college football with uh, who had a, ended up having a brain tumor ended his career. Uh, he's still alive, thankfully, but uh, it ended his career, so I just thought I'd put that on there for him and let him know I was thinking about him, and, and uh, it worked out pretty well. Did, did Roselle ever call you himself? Because uh, he, he sort of had a sense of humor about certain things. I wonder... I did. I talked to him at the, at the Pro Bowl that year, and... Uh, we got a laugh out of, out of it. And he, he actually thanked me for the free advertising that he got. Uh, but he did. A, he had a uh, good sense of humor about it. And uh, like it, it all worked out well. You know, it, I can't imagine a player taunting the commissioner today. I mean, after all, that's what Twitter's for, right? I jest, but after witnessing how the entire Bears team seemingly sidestepped one media minefield after another, it's even more amazing how they dominated despite the distractions of the 85 season and the Super Bowl itself. When we come back, Jim McMahon spills the dirt on Buddy versus Ditka. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower, 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we push against typical societal norms. We embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful, providing a space for raw, unfiltered conversations that celebrate vulnerability and allow you to tune in, to share, connect, and find comfort together. Our tears come as a way to let us release what we can't hold anymore. I trust that no one's ever going to find out those deepest, darkest secrets. Yeah. It's been a hard day. She walks out, and this is what she looks like. Oh my gosh, give her an Oscar! <laughs> 
Listen to A Really Good Cry with me, Radhi Devlukia, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. So in today's game, there are just a few teams that actually have co-coordinators. You know, one may handle the passing game and one may handle the running game. But there's never, of course, been co-head coaches. Except if you ask Buddy Ryan about the 85 Bears. Now, I mentioned this to you before, that Buddy considered himself the head coach of the defense. He also told me one time that he actually knew more about offenses than offensive coaches, since he's the one that had to devise schemes to stop them. But I will point out that with Ditka and Buddy, it was the only time in NFL history that two men were carried off the field on the shoulders of their players after winning a Super Bowl. There's no question that the dynamic between these two strong individuals was truly something to behold, as we're about to hear from Jim McMahon. You were talking before about the coaches and stuff, and, and one of the big p- things about that team was the, the, the personalities between Buddy and Mike. And, and, and was that true, that, there were, that they didn't talk during the year? I mean, that was sort of true when George Allen was a defensive coordinator with the Bears, and Hallis was there. I mean, George Allen wouldn't even show Hallis the defensive game plan. So I, I don't think that was unique for just this Chicago team. But when you were playing, uh, did it seem sort of strange to you, that the relationship, or, or you really just figured, well, this is part of this team, and we have a lot of characters, and we got two coaches that are characters? It was, uh, the first time I saw it was, it was kind of like, wow, I didn't know this went on. You know, I thought, <laughs> this guy's the head coach and supposed to do this and that, and Buddy says, look, I run the defense here. You know, I was here before you got here. You didn't hire me, and you can't fire me, so get out of my face. I mean, that was... That was a little strange at first, but then we just got used to it. I mean, it happened every week. Uh, there was always at one point in some game that somebody would break free and, and complete a long pass or get a long score on us. But that usually you know, didn't bother us because we were so far ahead. Um, so Mike would run over and say, why don't you play any damn zone once in a while? You know, and Buddy would say, yeah, I'll get the fuck out of here. You know, I, I'm running this, t- uh, this defensive team. But as soon as Buddy left, we got a guy in by the name of Vince Tobin, the following year, and, and people would just be completing balls on us down the field, and they could run up and say, why don't you blitz sometime, because he played too much zone. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you couldn't make him happy. I mean. Well, the interesting thing about Buddy Ryan is that it, 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 when he came to Philadelphia before you were there, he, he seemed even to piss off the offensive players of his own of his own team. I mean, when he was there with, with you, I mean, did some of the guys at offense say, what son of a bitch, you know, why, why is, you know, he does, he, he's like intimidating us and he's, and he's insulting us, or, or did that make you guys play better, or did you, well, you had a sort of an interesting relationship with Buddy, right? Well, I, I, I got along well, well with Buddy from day one when I got here in Chicago, and uh, I don't know what, I think he just liked my attitude or the way I played, I don't know what it was, but we've, we've gotten along real well over the years. But he, uh, he did, he can screw up an offense. <laughs> Because he doesn't care about offense. I mean, Buddy just does not care. You know, even back in, uh, I played for him in Phoenix this year, and he said, uh, he told our coordinator, just don't turn the ball over. We'll score on defense and we'll win. I mean, we had some pretty good offensive talent, but uh, he just does not care. He wants all the focus on his defense, and that's it, period. And then I was going to say, you had a book that was Christ a bestseller for, it was in the New York Times bestseller list. That's still, I think, the number one selling biography and the... Well, the next one will be better. <laughs> slam all ambassadors next time. 
Okay. That, that was a question about, you know, the book. Were you, were, when that came out, were you surprised? Here it was, you know, it was like uh, the bridges of Madison County, and then here you have, your book was a number one on the bestseller list. I mean, when you were doing the book, did you ever think that it was going to be any, that, that big a deal? Well, when they approached me to do the book, uh, I thought it was a little bit premature. I'd only played four years, and, and uh, but there was so much that had been written and said about me at the time, and then the thing happened in New Orleans. Uh, I wanted people to get a, a, a true understanding of what I'm all about, uh, to, to tell it in my own words. And I thought by doing a book that, uh, you know, maybe people would have a, a little better understanding of who, who the hell Jim McMahon is and, uh, you know, where I came from. and. Uh, you know, I just, you know, I still get a lot of comments about how, you know, people enjoyed it. And uh, it, it was, uh, that wasn't my favorite subject, sitting there talking about myself for that, that amount of time. But uh, I just wanted to, to set the record straight and then let people judge for themselves rather than, than reading, a, reading something in the newspaper or seeing something on television about these guys' opinions about me. And this is a tough question for to ask, but you as a quarterback and a personality were a lot different. I mean, you have other quarterbacks, and I mean, uh, somebody once said it was either Roger Staubach, I forget, the quarterbacks, there's a caste system, and then you have the top of the, as the quarterback is the top of the caste system, and he's sort of separate. But your whole approach was totally different than that, and every team you've been with, you get a response from your team like no, none of the other quarterbacks do. I mean, the guys that play for you. Is that something that, that you, you, do you realize that? Or is this, you look, this is the way I am, and, and I choose my friends whoever I want, and this is what I, I enjoy playing the game. Or as a quarterback, you're supposed to be a leader. Do you, did you realize as a quarterback that this is, is, is probably your greatest strength as a leader? I remember Jumbo saying that when you took on, when you were on the field, everybody the level of play raised. I mean, is that something as a quarterback that you feel is just as important as your footwork or your quick release or stuff like that? Well, I was, uh, even growing up through, uh, you know, Little League and high school, uh, I, never, I never tried to put myself above anybody else. I mean, I was a position on a football team. Uh, even though the quarterback is, is a very important position, I don't feel that I carried myself that I was better than anybody else. I wanted to be, you know, one of the guys. Because in order for me to do my job, everybody else had to do theirs. Because if the offensive line doesn't, doesn't block, you know, I don't care who the hell you are, you're not going to win. You're not going to perform well. And, uh, and I relayed that to them. I let them know, look, you know, without you guys, I, I can't do my job. I, I'm nothing. And I think they, uh, they respected that because I didn't, I didn't put myself above them. I put myself in there with them. And I said, look, you guys do your job and I'll do mine. And I think, uh, I think it worked out well that way. It's been that way my whole career and it's going to be that way as long as I play. You, when you talk of quarterbacks today, you have, you know, Steve Young's a great athlete, uh, Marino's got a quick release. But anybody you bring up your name, nobody talks about your arm or this. It's all how fucking tough the guy. I saw the guy play where he couldn't walk. I saw him walk into a, uh, a game where his arm was swollen and he still played. I mean, even Richie Kotite, they still tell stories. But that's something that you must realize. That's got to be something as valuable to you as a leader as any physical skill is it almost seemed to me that you almost want to be hurt a little bit because that you seem to raise the level of your play when you're playing in pain i mean you think do you think well first physically you have a pain threshold i mean you're one of those guys that can you know stick pins in your hand and you don't feel it or is it just the competitive nature that you get in and you just can forget about that well i think uh 
a lot happens on game day. I mean, you just, the adrenaline starts to flow. I mean, I, I couldn't do it during the week. I mean, I couldn't go out there and practice with the pain that I was in at, at certain points of my career. But uh, on game day, it just seems like I forget about it. I mean, the adrenaline kicks in, a uh, little help from the doctors. <laughs> I mean, you got to have some numbing effect in there, too. But I always felt that if I can walk out on the field, I'm going to play. And uh, no matter what kind of a shape I was in, that I felt that I, can, I could do the job. And uh, you know, I, I'm always able to, to block out a lot of the pain. I mean, once the game's over, then I you know, sit there and, and try to analyze it and go, why the hell do you keep doing this? But uh, there's something about walking out of that tunnel on Sunday uh, that just that gets me going. I mean, I want to be out there. I want to play. Uh, I hate being a spectator. Um, that's been the roughest part of my career is when I'm not able to play, to have to sit there and watch the games and, and see the guys, what they're going through, and, and knowing I could be out there helping them. Um, that's, you know, I'm able to block that out and just say, hell, I can play, coach. Just let me in. And uh, I think guys respond to that because they see I'm out there in the shape that I'm in, given everything I've got, and I think uh, that does something to them. Last few questions. A few single things about a few guys that you played with. This will be easy. <clears throat> Walter Payton. You know, I remember him being sort of a practical joker. Was that? He was, he was one of the biggest jokers I've ever met in sports. I mean, the guy was, uh, seemed like he was always up uh, doing something, you know, whether it be M80s in the locker room or, or outside your door or, or coming around pinching you. Or, or, uh, I mean, he's the strongest man I've ever met in my life. He'll come up and grab you hug you and, and just take your breath away, break your hand if he, he shook it hard enough. But uh, he was just a, uh, a great, great person to play with, a lot of fun. Uh, I still see him a lot, and uh, I'm just glad I was able to, to play with a guy like that. Now, in the Super Bowl, why do you think that he got so upset when he didn't score a touchdown? To me, it almost seemed like there's a guy that's going to get down as the greatest running back uh, ever. And, and the team's blowing out this team. And, and what, 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 why was it so important to him, do you think, to have scored a touchdown, and even it was just like a gilding the lily. Almost. Well, I think it's you know he'd played for so long and, and been uh, he'd, he'd been the Chicago Bears for so many years, and to see him not be able to get in that end zone in the biggest game of his life, I think it was uh, it, it had to hurt. I mean, it hurt me not not being able or not seeing him score a touchdown. I mean, we had some plays called. The, the first one that I scored on was was an option play. It was either me or Walter was going to score the score the touchdown. But uh, you, you look back at it, New England's focus was Walter Payton. They said we're going to stop Walter Payton, and they did a pretty good job. You know, I don't think he got 100 yards. Uh, I mean, everywhere he went, there was two or three guys there with him. Uh, the one play I remember, the first play of the second half, where we were backed up in the end zone, uh, we had the play action pass that I hit Willie Galt down. We had a big gain. Uh, I faked the ball to Walter, and you can see the whole defensive football team go after him. And I think that's, that's really what hurt the New England Patriots in that game. They focused so much on Walter, they forgot that we had some other pretty good offensive players. And I think uh, that was their downfall, worrying so much about Walter, they, they let everybody else uh, have a pretty good day. When you talk about running backs, what, what did you first think when they put the, the fridge in the backfield? Did you, did you think that, oh, this is, this is really silly, or did you think, hey, Well, that's, that all came about because of in the championship game in 1984, Bill Walsh did that to us. He put Guy McIntyre in the backfield and, and, and ground the ball out and, and uh, wouldn't give it back to us. 
So in order to get back at Bill, uh, in fact, it was the following year, we went out to play San Francisco. And uh, <clears throat> we're ahead late in the game, and they put Fridge in the backfield so we can ground it out. And that was just, that's how that started. Just to say, hey, we can do that too, or you're not going to one-up me. I'm going to get you back. And that's the way it started. But then nobody thought that he would become a folk hero. I mean, or did you realize that, hey, this, this, something, this, this could be something? I say, I would not want to tackle that man. You know, you give him the ball a little head of steam. Uh, another Monday night game against Green Bay, he hit, I don't know who it was, one of their linebackers, and just, it was actually kind of funny to watch it on film. I know that guy didn't feel it was very funny, getting blasted like that, but uh, that's, a, that's a lot of man to try to take down in that short of, sp in that short of space. And it's actually a pretty good idea. And, uh, you know, but it ended, the way it ended up, I mean, the guy was just, everybody wanted the ball then. Uh, it's, uh, but and plus, I think uh, in the Super Bowl, I think there was a little money bet in Vegas about whether or not he was going to score. And I think that's why he got in there. Okay, Mike Singletary. One of the hardest working men I've ever played with. Uh, even in practice, 100% all out every play. And uh, he, he turned himself into a, a great linebacker. Because I know when he first, he was a year ahead of me here in Chicago, and, and uh, Buddy Ryan was not real high on him uh, from all the indications that I had that uh, you know, Buddy didn't want him playing. He was a rookie. Uh, he couldn't learn the system. And uh, Mike studied and studied and studied, and he, he turned himself into a great football player. Um, Wilbur Marshall. That's one guy that I would not want to get hit by. Of all the people that I've played against, he is the uh, probably one of the meanest, uh, greatest athletes I've ever seen. He's not a real big man, uh, tall anyway, but he's he's very thick and he's very fast. But he's one of the meanest men that I've ever I've ever met. Off the field, is he's uh, you know as gentle as they come, and that's really surprising. You look at all the guys that have played in Chicago, guys like Doug Plank, uh, Mike Singletary. Uh, Wilbur Marshall. I mean, to meet him off the field, it's, it's just like, oh, this guy's too nice to be a football player. But they put on a helmet and some pads, and uh, they'll hit anything that moves. And they did <laughs> for a long time. But uh, Wilbur was, uh, he's, I've been asked that a lot, but he's the one guy I would not want to get blasted by or blindsided. I'd like to see him coming so I can get down. Last question, sir. Any, uh, if we go back, Jim, to that, any play in your career when you come back that you'd want it over again? Is your one? Uh, it would probably be the play that I blew my arm out against Cleveland, the opening game in 1986. Because that's when, uh, that's when all this uh, rift between myself and Dan Hampton and, and uh, Mike Ditka and everybody else, uh, nobody on the offense was upset that I was hurt. But this, this one play, I, I hurt my arm. And uh, had I just got it taken care of after that play, sat out the rest of the year, I think all this other stuff between myself and Hamp and everybody else who got upset about whether or not I was hurt or didn't want to play and this and that, uh, I'd take that play out. And, and get rid of the ball sooner so I wouldn't have fell on my arm the way I did and, and, and screwed it up. Because uh, Singletary asked me that last, last summer I was in training camp and he says, is there anything that you'd do differently you know, over your career? And 
I said I would have got operated on the day after that football game because then I wouldn't have had all this trouble between you and, and everybody on the defensive side of the football. Um, because that was just, uh, I, could, I, I just couldn't understand why they didn't feel that I was hurt, you know. And I'd played hurt all those years before, and uh, it was very frustrating to me, very frustrating to everybody. But uh, when I finally went and got my arm looked at by a, a real doctor, uh, he says, your arm is gone. I said, yeah, I've been telling them that for 10 weeks, but they, they just uh, didn't want to believe it. That would be the play. I can't even remember. It was late in the game, and I just had kind of rolled out and, and dumped the ball and got hit and landed on it. And In fact, Keith Van Horn asked me, he said, you all right? And I said, I just blew out my shoulder. I knew at the time, but um, that's the one I'd, I'd take out and just scratch it out. Okay. All right. That's it. By the way, after that 1986 shoulder injury, McMahon's arm was never the same. Look. McMahon's a fascinating character, but he has a complicated legacy. His persona made him appear more popular and polarizing than his actual on-field performance. Consider that over his 15-year playing career, he never even passed for 3,000 yards in a single season. He never even played a full 16-game season. The 15 touchdowns he threw in 1985 were the most in a single year for his entire career. And yet his legacy in Chicago, really in NFL history, lives on longer than some of the other quarterbacks that have the stats, but not the ring. Or the mouth, for that matter. McMahon retired following the 1996 season after two years backing up Brett Favre in Green Bay. He even got a ring after the Packers beat the Patriots 11 years to the day after his 85 Bears beat New England. In one last act of rebellion... McMahon actually showed up at the White House for the Packers ring ceremony wearing his Bears jersey. He said it was because the Bears never got their opportunity to visit the White House in 1986. Next week, we have another larger-than-life figure, but one who backed up his bravado on the field and earned three Super Bowl rings. The loquacious former Cowboy number 88, Michael Irvin, who... I've had the pleasure of working with at both ESPN and NFL Network. I sure hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrea Kramer. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful. Listen to A Really Good Cry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.